This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. When we think of the effects that human activities are having on the environment, we tend to think of things like logging in the Amazon or oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. But in fact, our everyday activities have effects closer to home as well. Today on Fordham Conversations, we are going to look at two of those effects right here in our home area. A little later, we'll go out to the wilds of Westchester on a fungus hunt, and we'll learn how things like driving might be stunting our local forests. It's more complicated than you might think. But first, we'll talk with one biologist who's looking at the effects that the warmer winters we've been having lately, which have been nice, but which many associate with climate change, are having on one of the more photogenic representatives of our local fauna, chipmunks. Craig Frank is an associate professor of biology at Fordham, and he does his research at Fordham's Lewis Calder Center up in Armonk. He spends his time researching how small animals survive the winter, and a few years ago he and his colleagues started noticing a strange phenomenon. Frank joined me in the studio to talk about this phenomenon and why those of us who weigh more than a couple of pounds should care about it. Craig Frank, welcome. Thank you. So tell me about this work you are doing with chipmunks. Well, the work that I'm doing with chipmunks was basically started off as a side project. Um, the larger focus of my laboratory is how small mammals survive the winter. And basically, small mammals have three different strategies for doing this. They either use torpor or hibernation, or they store food and don't hibernate at all, or they do a combination of both. And eastern chipmunks are unique in that They actually do both. They're one of the few species of mammals that do that in the Northeast. I was doing a larger project looking at more classical type of hibernation, and we thought it would be nice to actually start following chipmunks, free-ranging chipmunks here in the Northeast and the southeastern part of New York State. Not really looking at it from a climate change point of view, but simply looking at what it is that they're doing during the winter, how frequently they're using torpor, etc. And we started this in the fall and winter of 2000. After the first season, we actually started noticing certain trends. In the November-December period of 2001, what is actually the warmest November-December in recorded New York State history and weather records going back to 1909, and we noticed that none of the chipmunks actually entered a state of torpor during the winter. And so we said, well, this is interesting. Maybe some climate change might have something to do with it, maybe not. We continued following the animals every fall, winter period during subsequent years. And we never saw the animals have a winter where they didn't use torpor or had reductions in torpor until last year. Last year, the November of 2006, December of 2006, uh, surpassed November 2001 and December 2001 in terms of warmth. It was the, actually, was a new record high. Uh, We saw dramatic reduction in torpor, and now we were able to follow the animals throughout the rest of the winter into the spring to the end of April. And interesting thing about this was that even when it got colder, the animals still did not enter torpor and remained basically what we call euthermic, where they kept a normal body temperature throughout the recording period. So even when it got to the temperature where they would normally uh, Mm -hmm. enter torpor or start to hibernate, they didn't? That's right. Um, What we saw was that it got very cold in about mid-January, mid-January of 2007, 
We didn't see any animals entering torpor at that point. And in fact, by mid-February, we still hadn't seen any torpor. The two animals that did enter torpor, we saw some torpor. And then uh, these collars, because they measure body temperature, also give us an indication of whether or not the animal is still alive. When the animal expires, the temperature of the collar will drop to that of the soil temperature, and we monitor soil temperature as well, and it will stay there. The animals will never warm up. I mean, the collars will never warm up because the animal that they're attached to doesn't warm up. And so we follow the signals until the end of April of all these collars that were just giving us consistent soil temperature readings. And we saw no evidence that the animals are even still alive. We would triangulate, try to locate the collars, the, the things were not moving. We never saw the animals. We never were able to recapture the animals again in the spring. So I think it's a, in small mammal studies, this type of data indicates that the animals are most likely passed away of natural causes. I actually was surprised when I read about your work to discover that animals as small as chipmunks actually do hibernate. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why, why animals hibernate and also what, what triggers it? Well, hibernation is a species-specific type of thing. Either a species of mammal hibernates or it doesn't. Uh, rarely do we have a situation where you have one population that hibernates and one doesn't. And Hibernation, or torpor, is something which is really unique to both mammals and birds in, in the type of hibernation that we're talking about when we talk about chipmunks. And this has to do with the fact that mammals and birds have a couple of characteristics which are unique with respect to their metabolism. First, uh, mammals and birds are homeothermic, which means that under normal circumstances, they defend a constant body temperature, whereas most other species of animals are what we call poikilothermic, where their body temperature varies with that of the environment. Is that what we would say, uh, like cold-blooded? Yes. In common language, that would be cold-blooded. And in addition to that, the source of the heat is somewhat unique. Mammals and birds are also what we call endothermic, which means that they generate most of their own body heat. They do not rely on the external environment for their body temperature, whereas cold-blooded, if you will, animals tend to be also ectothermic. That is, that they derive most of their body heat from the, their surroundings. So you put those two things together, and it makes it very expensive in terms of metabolic energy to be either a mammal or a bird. If you take a small mammal, say about 100 grams, and you take a lizard that weighs also 100 grams, and even if you had both of them in such an environment where they had the same body temperature you would see that the metabolic rate of the mammal would be about 20 times that of the lizard. So in the wintertime, mammals and birds face kind of a double problem. First, temperatures are very cold, which makes it very difficult for them to generate enough body heat to keep a constant body temperature. Second, in seasonal environments, food supplies tend to be low. So they're food stressed, and they are in a, in a thermal environment where they have to expend more energy to keep a constant body temperature. So about 75 species of mammals worldwide have evolved the strategy of using torpor. And what torpor is, is that they simply allow their body temperatures to drop within a few degrees of the surrounding environment up to a certain point. Usually they just change to the set point upon which they regulate their body temperature to say 37 or 38 degrees centigrade and bring it down close to zero, close to freezing. And when ambient temperatures are within that range, their body temperature will fluctuate 
with the ambient temperature within about a degree. Once they get below a certain point, usually to avoid freezing of tissues, even an animal while it's in a state of torpor will start increasing its metabolic rate if ambient temperatures get too low to prevent freezing. So that's basically what torpor is. It enables, say, an animal like a ground squirrel to take an amount of body fat, which under normal circumstances would only last about 10 days, and stretch that supply out to eight and a half months. Wow. So the chipmunks that you've been looking at for the last while, when it's been warmer, fewer of them have hibernated. Why has that been? We don't know. I'm just reporting on a phenomenon which we've observed. One thing that other people have shown with chipmunks is that they belong to an interesting class of hibernators, and that is what are called um, facultative hibernators. It seems that hibernating species of mammals tend to fall in one of two categories. You have spontaneous hibernators where no matter what the temperature is or what the photo period is, at a certain time of year, they're going to enter a state of torpor, and you really can't stop them from doing it. Then there is a smaller class of hibernators, which are called facultative hibernators, where they actually seem to have some control over when they enter torpor, and they will only enter torpor when they perceive an environmental stress, such as a food shortage or that it gets too cold or they can't defend a certain body temperature. Chipmunks are facultative hibernators, so that's been demonstrated by other investigators. So what appears to be going on is that this is in somewhat of a normal response to unusual environmental circumstances. When uh, the animals are in an, an environment where they perceive it to be warm, they choose not to enter torpor, and that's, that's normal for a facultative hibernator. What I think is happening is that these torpor patterns are being affected in the long term by unusually warm late fall, early winter temperatures. And that's something which hasn't been observed before. And when you say unusually warm temperatures, what you mean possibly is climate change. Right. Um, if you take a look at the government uh, statistics in terms of t average temperatures for southeastern New York or all of New York State or all of the Northeast for that matter, November 2006 was a record warm month. December 2006 was a record warm month. Even October of 2007 was the warmest October some of these records go back to 1895. So in these chipmunks, there's sort of a, a meter of coldness in the, in the early fall, early winter months. And if it doesn't get cold during that time, they say, oh, I guess I'm not going to hibernate. Well, I, I don't know what they say to themselves. But what I can say is that it does seem that they have to experience a certain amount of thermal stress in the late fall, early winter. If they experience that, then they enter kind of a classical kind of torpor pattern. But if they don't, then it seems that torpor is inhibited. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we are talking about our local environment and how it's being affected by our activities. A little later, we'll go on a brisk winter fungus hunt with Fordham biologist Amy Tuninga. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Craig Frank. So you'd think that hibernation would be easy, given that it's basically just going to sleep, um, at least in the popular imagination. But it's actually much more complicated than that, and it's actually very hard. Tell me about that. Well, hibernation is actually something that medical researchers have been interested in for a long time, because the metabolic depression is quite profound. During torpor, 
the average torpid mammal has a metabolic rate which is only about 10% of normal levels. And so everything gets slowed down. Respirations drop to just a few per minute. Heartbeats drop to just a few per minute. And the body temperatures in some species goes down to actually uh, minus 2 degrees centigrade. actually goes down to below freezing. And the animals actually seem to supercool and not freeze and not suffer any damage from it. But it's more complicated than that. It's not simply dropping body temperature. For example, in, say, a human being, if their body temperature in their chest area, in their thorax, dropped just a few degrees centigrade, you would go into what's called ventricular fibrillation, where your heart would have an erratic heartbeat and eventually stop. And that's true for just about all non-hibernating species of mammals. However, in a hibernating rodent, for example, body temperatures go down uh, from... 38 degrees centigrade all the way down to zero degrees centigrade, and the heart beats slowly, but it still beats normally. Same thing with brain function. If a human being's body temperature drops, say, five or seven degrees centigrade, there's some serious problems with loss of brain function and sometimes irreparable damage is done. These animals are able to stay at, some species are able to stay at a low body temperature for three, almost four weeks at a time, 28 days at a time, where their body temperatures are below zero degrees centigrade and come out of it with no apparent brain damage, no heart arrhythmias, no problems whatsoever. So it takes a unique set of physiological adaptations in order to do this, the biochemical and cellular basis of which is completely unknown. So if if the trends that we're seeing right now continue in terms of the warm late fall, early winters that we've been seeing in New York State, what do you anticipate will happen with these kinds of chipmunks and other hibernating species? Well, I think it's important to take a look at, at how warm things were in those two November-December periods that I was referring to. If you take a look at the data, on average, it was about 4 degrees centigrade warmer than normal. That's a very important number because most climate models predict that for the Northeast, or for most of North America for that matter, that climate change over the next 50 to 70 years will increase temperatures by an average of about 4 degrees centigrade. So I think what we're seeing with the chipmunks are kind of a preview of things to come. In New York State, there are roughly 90 species of mammals that are common. About 18 of them are known to use torpor to survive the winter to some extent. So what we're seeing with chipmunks may have implications for say 20% of the mammal population of New York State as well. That we also may see a situation where the southern limit of the species boundary actually starts migrating north, which is what actually some investigators have predicted, that certain species of mammals will actually, their range distribution will actually start creeping up northward. So how how do you keep track of these chipmunks? Mm. Explain how the project works. Well, this involves a relatively new technology, uh, which is a modification of a very old technology. I mean, we've all seen television shows where they're out uh, looking at large, usually large mammals or large birds, and they capture them and they put radio collars on and basically they do what's called triangulation. They're just trying to figure out the home range of the animal, and how, how much it moves in a day, and things like that. Starting in, say, the early 1990s, these radio collars, because of advances in electronics, started becoming very small. And a couple of uh, my more senior colleagues had the idea of making them 
temperature sensitive, where that the inside of the collar actually is a thermometer, and it measures the animal that's wearing it, it measures its um, skin temperature, which is, in small mammals, is almost equivalent to body temperature. We started working with the various radio collar manufacturers and developing and getting smaller and smaller radio collars where we could actually get a collar that's small enough but still has enough battery life to last, say, an entire eight- or nine-month hibernation period. Finally, 2003 basically came up with the system that we have now. The other problem with this, of course, is once you have the collar, you have to have somebody read the radio signals. That can be a challenge if you want to follow an animal for a nine-month period. And the first few years that we did this kind of work, we had you know, several people working in shifts, actually going out, say, at 12-hour intervals measuring uh, temperatures. I decided that what we needed was an automated system, and in 2003, I contacted the National Science Foundation again, told them my ideas, and they gave me a small grant to work with a, uh, a couple of off-the-shelf units to come up with a, with a computer-driven system where you basically would have a radio receiver married to a small computer, and it would control the receiver, wake up at certain intervals, scan the radio frequencies, record the number of pulses with a time and date stamp, and then go back to sleep. And we got that system uh, in 2003, and we've been tweaking it and writing software for it and getting it to work properly ever since. And now we have a, a system which, is, which I think is quite robust. Uh, we have collars which f can function easily for a 10-month hibernation period if there was one that was that long. And we have an automated system which does a very good job of following the signals. Just out of curiosity, how do you get the collars on the chipmunks? Well, it's very easy. Um, it's basically we set out the scientific equivalent of have a heart trap, um, capture the animals, um, anesthetize them, put the collar on them, and then release them. The whole process takes probably a couple hours the most. And they don't mind having the collars on? I mean, it doesn't affect their life cycle in any way? No, um, it doesn't seem to. Uh, remember that the, they're facultative hibernators, and if they're uncomfortable about anything, they simply would choose not to enter torpor. There's no evidence that that it is affecting any of their behaviors at all. I will ask you one more question, and I'll close with this. Um, we know, of course, that chipmunks are very cute, but other than that, why is this something we should care about? What does it say about larger issues? Well, like I kind of alluded to that earlier, um, you a biologist studies a particular species because they're a good model for testing larger principles. And what goes for torpor in chipmunks goes for torpor and other species of mammals, and for that matter, birds, as well. And so um, I chose to study chipmunks simply because uh, they're an easy animal to study to answer larger questions, and the larger question, one of which was, is how, does, how do torpor patterns vary with variations in environmental temperature in free-ranging animals? The Reduction in torpor during these exceptionally warm fall and early winter periods has implications for the torpor patterns of bats, uh, the torpor patterns of black bears, uh, the torpor patterns of um, other rodents, which are indigenous to the northeast. And so I think that this 
work with the chipmunks has implications for a number of other hibernating species as well. What would those implications be? Well, that when we have unseasonably warm periods during the fall or during the winter, followed by cold periods, that we may see some sort of erratic response in respect to torpor patterns, which may have detrimental uh, consequences. Well, Craig Frank is an associate professor of biology at Fordham. Craig Frank, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. A little later this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, The Art of Whistling, that is ahead at 7.30. Now, we tend to get all upset when pollution bothers a cute furry creature. But what about fungus? Many of us think of fungus as something undesirable, perhaps something growing on the inside of the shower curtain. But Amy Tuninga takes a more charitable view of fungus, especially the kind she studies. They're called mycorrhizal fungus, mycorrhizae, and they're known as a kind of good fungus. They're called that because by growing around tree roots, the fungi help trees get some of the nutrients they need to grow strong. And in the process, they get some of what they need from the trees as well. I met up with Tuninga at her lab in Armonk. It's the same forested area where Craig Frank's chipmunks live. And we took a walk in the forest looking for mycorrhizae in the ground. Afterwards, she explained to me what's happening with the fungi, what it could mean in the long run, and why she thinks it's part of a larger problem with the way that we look at what's around us. I'm Amy Tuninga. I'm an assistant professor in the biology department at Fordham, and I study fungal ecology. One of the main things that I study is mycorrhizae, and what that means is a fungus attached to a root. So these are good fungi. The fungi grow in between the root cells, and they help the plant to get nutrients and water. And so the fungus grows out into the soil, is able to take up the nutrients and translocate them back to the plant. They also help the plant to um, be protected because it forms a fungal sheath around the root, so it protects them from herbivory and other pathogens, the bad fungi in the soil. It helps them protect them from drought, um, so it provides drought resistance to them. We're going to go out and take a look at um, some of the mycorrhizae in their natural habitat. So we'll find some trees that have ectomycorrhizae. We're going to push aside the litter layer, the leaves that have freshly fallen, and then we'll dig up some of the roots. Tell me what you're wearing. This is just rain gear. It's just pants and a jacket that um, prevent you from getting wet with your clothes that are underneath. So it also keeps you a bit warmer when it's chilly out. But when we're sitting down on the soil or on the um, ground and it's pretty moist down there, um, you don't want to be sitting on a <laughs> soggy ground and get a soggy um, clothing underneath. <laughs> I also have hiking boots on <laughs> that help if you're walking on a slope so you don't twist your ankle. I'm anticipating that we'll find um, plenty of mycorrhizae today because the soils really and the roots stay active for quite a while after it snows. Um, they continue functioning until it really has a very hard, until we have a really hard freeze. You need to be careful and watch out for poison ivy. What does that look like? Some, I will point it out to you. It's three leaves. Oh, okay. They range in color from yellow, pink, brown. Um, we're looking at one right now that's copper, just like the color of a penny. It's really um, metallic looking. 
some of them have more of these rhizomorphs or strands of fungi that go out into the soil. Some of them form little balls um, and cover a lot of roots at once. And um, there's some that are even purple and blue and pink. <laughs> so it's really surprising when you start looking through the microscope what colors you're seeing. It's not that all the roots are brown. You're seeing a, a whole range of colors. So they're sort of, they're sort of pretty in a way. Yes. When I first started studying mycorrhizae, I took over a culture collection, which is just the fungus growing in a petri dish, uh, for a woman. And she said, oh, they're so beautiful. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll just do my job and, and um, culture the fungi. But when I started looking at them, I really do think that they're beautiful. And um, now I tell people that, and they look at me like, <laughs> okay. I believe that the general public should know more about these kinds of things, um, being um, biology, human effects on our environment, and how, we, how, how the environment is responding to human activity. I went to Sweden. A colleague of mine was um, on their equivalent of NPR radio, and I was visiting a distant relative, a 93-year-old woman, and um, she said, oh, Michael Risey, I know what those are. You're here for the conference. I go out and collect mushrooms. Here's my book. Want to see the mushrooms that I collect? <laughs> and she took me to show me where she collected her mushrooms. People should know a little bit more about this and be more involved in the kind of decision-making process for how our activities are, are affecting the environment and, and how that's feeding back to us and our lives and our health. Okay, I'm going to put these in the bag and then we'll head over to just try one more tree and see if we get something a little bit more exciting. I think some of these roots have gone to sleep for the winter. Greater than 90% of plant families have representatives that are mycorrhizal. So they're everywhere. But when we have pollutants from the atmosphere that are emitted through the combustion of fossil fuels being deposited on the forest, it's reducing these mycorrhizae because the plant's getting all the nutrients it needs. So the additional benefits, the drought resistance, the um, resistance to pathogens isn't occurring. Um, the mycorrhizae are no longer forming um, associations with the, the tree roots. So the fungi are lost. We're losing biodiversity through depositing lots of nitrogen on the soils. When you're driving your car, the gas that you put in your car is being combusted. Forms of nitrogen that are gaseous are emitted up into the atmosphere and later deposited elsewhere. Most forests in the, in the U.S. are nitrogen limited. Nitrogen acts as a fertilizer and so when it's being deposited it helps the plants for a little while and then it gets deposited more and more and more and pretty much it's too much of a good thing and the system becomes saturated and the forests go into decline. The plants will be fine for in the short term, but you know, over a period of a decade or a hundred years, they're going to be in decline. We've, we're already seeing signs of this all over the Northeast. It's happened in Europe already. In the end, we'll see forests that may be reduced in stature or not looking as healthy. We're losing biodiversity, meaning numbers of species of lots of organisms, not just plant species, or losing function. So the system's not integrated, it's not functioning well. Because it's been disturbed so heavily, it's losing some of its ecosystem function and ecosystem services that it provides. So 
through time, we're going to lose some of the species that are there. We're also losing productivity of those species and the integrated functions that they perform. I was walking through Central Park and heard somebody say, I just hate nature. And it was all I could do to retain my composure and, and, and not confront the woman. But I thought, you know, you really need nature in order to just exist. The reason that we have oxygen to breathe is the result of plants. Without nature, we really wouldn't be here or have a home or have the things that we have. Um, many of the products that we use are the result of nature. And so I think people need to be a little bit more aware of where things that they obtain and use and need on a daily basis come from. I know a lot of my students in the city tell me, you know, I ask them about the food they eat and where it comes from. They don't want to know. They say, I don't want to think about it. If I have to if I have to think about where my chicken came from, I don't want to eat it. <laughs> and to me, that means that you shouldn't be eating it if, if you don't want to think about it or know about where it comes from. I think we need to be a little bit more in touch um, with our surroundings and be a little bit more sustainable and able to sustain ourselves. Um, and that doesn't happen as much in the cities. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. To find out more about the research going on at the Calder Center, you can go to their website. That's fordham.edu slash calder underscore center. Our show is available as a podcast at wfuv.org, and it's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is fordhamconversations at wfuv.org. We would love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty, producing the show this week with help from Liz Brockland. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.